you don't achieve peak performance by just constantly stressing yourself. You know, it's the stress plus, you know, the rest that, you know, creates the growth. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, we introduce Eric Partaker, entrepreneur, peak performance coach, early employee at Skype, and founder of UK restaurant group Chilongo. We're discussing Eric's founder journey from selling chocolates as a child to his early career as a McKinsey consultant, from joining Skype as a small company to founding a large restaurant chain, to his work helping entrepreneurs and CEOs update their internal software for optimizing performance and well-being. Eric's an incredible storyteller with experiences rooted in a rich and varied career. His insights into how we can learn to perform our best while feeling satisfied along the way are not to be missed. So I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did our conversation. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, Eric Partaker, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Great to have you. Yeah, likewise, great to be here. It's been like, what, I don't know, a month or so since we spoke last time, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was it was thanks to Oliver Oust, who's also been a, a guest on the podcast and is a mutual friend that connected us. I think we have some pretty common interests in terms of peak performance and, and entrepreneurship and don't meet a lot of people that have those same shared uh, shared loves. So I figured we had such a good conversation. Let's record it and share it with everybody else. Peak, peak performance, entrepreneurship and, and globe trotting. Right. We, we both kind of uh, we're like transplanted uh north americans <laughs> yep yanks yanks in the old country right that's yeah, for yeah, sure exactly. cool well i mean the way uh the way i like to kick things off i'm a big fan of storytelling i think it's a much more compelling way and frankly i'm a crappy interviewer so um why don't we just kind of start things off and um, really interested in kind of hearing your journey, how you went from, you know, where you come from to um, being a renowned entrepreneur and, you know, performance coach. Kind of tell us your entrepreneurial story. Yeah, cool. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm half Norwegian, half American, but I, I grew up in the, in the States in Chicago from the age of five. And um, <clears throat> Yeah, I, I grew up in a, you know, in a, in a blue collar, just hardworking family. Um, you know, no, nobody in my family had, had gone to university. And, um, um, and I got a lot of my work ethic from my parents. And one of uh, a story I can, I can uh, share with you. I was, so I was 10 years old and um, at my school, they passed out all these brochures for uh, this world's finest chocolate, um, like, you know, charity drive. And, you know, for those 
watching, listening, whatever. So world's finest chocolate, basically they, you know, they put chocolate into the schools for the kids to sell. And part of the chocolate um, uh, sales then go to a charity. And of course the company <laughs> keeps them. And then as a kid, you're inspired or motivated by, you know, X number of chocolate sold, you know, gets you to various prize thresholds. So this booklet gets passed out and I immediately flip to the back of it because I want to see, well, what's the biggest thing that you can get, you know? And, um, and on the back, um, I see this BMX bicycle. And I had, I, had a, I had a Schwinn bike at the time, which is a good bike. It wasn't a cool bike. because <laughs> yeah. I had the you know, big banana seat on it and uh, it was a cool bike. Uh, yeah, sorry, it was a good bike, but it wasn't a cool bike. And so I thought, wow, I really want to get a BMX bike because, you know, again, my parents, we didn't have a lot of money and there's no way that my parents would be able to afford something like that. Um, and then I looked, well, how many boxes of chocolate do I got to sell? I said 20 boxes. I thought, okay, um, 20 boxes, how many, you know, chocolate bars in a box, 30 in a box. So I got to sell 600 bars of chocolate. They're a buck 50 each. So I got to sell $900 worth of chocolate and I got one month to do it. So you know, do I have a network that's gonna you know, buy $900 worth of chocolate? Hell no. I don't have like, you know, how, how am I gonna, how am I gonna move that chocolate? It sounds like we're talking about drugs now, right? But you know, how am I gonna move all this chocolate? And um, so I have a simple idea. And uh, I say to, I say to my ma, I'm like, ma, is it okay if, um, if I just drive to the local uh, drive, <laughs> if I ride my Schwinn bicycle, which I want to upgrade to the local grocery store? And uh, she's like, yeah, that's fine. So every day I take a box of chocolates and I go to the local grocery store and I stand outside the store. It's called Dominic's. And, um, and I just say, you know, world's finest chocolate, buck 50. First week, like almost no sales. People generally need to buy groceries every week, right? So by the second week, I'm starting to see a lot of the people that came the first week. And they still see this 10-year-old boy out there, you know, world's finest chocolate. And people start to ask me questions, you know, what are you doing this for? I'm trying to get a bike and all this. And so suddenly the purchases start coming in. I think partly out of pity, partly out of, you know, respect for my persistence. Because I was doing this every day after school from like 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., and then on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday for eight straight hours. And this is like back in the day, because we're, you know, you're, you're in your 40s, right? Yeah. 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 So I, I'm 45. You know, this is when we were kids, like our parents didn't think anything of us, like hopping on a bicycle, being 10 years old and like, you know, cycling like four miles away. <laughs> but like, I, I wouldn't even fathom, you know, my kids doing that today. But, you know, back in the day, we could do this. And um, and so I, you know, I was doing this day in, day out. And um Dude, I got to the end and, uh, and I was like so close to, you know, getting the, you know, the, the enough boxes sold. And um, it was like a day before the last day. And uh, I was riding home in the rain and I still, you know, had a, you know, a few boxes to sell. And these were like wooden, uh, um, you know, like cardboard boxes, right? And so when you got the box, you kind of cracked it in half and it had a handle in the middle. And so I was riding my bike and it was pouring rain and I had these boxes that have unsold chocolate. I was trying to get home and they started to fill with water. And I was looking down, I was like, shit, you know, the chocolate's getting ruined and, and I'm pedaling faster. And then boom, the bottoms of the boxes break open and all of my last chocolate bars just kind of spill like on a little pile on the street and a car comes to a screeching halt. I could literally have stuck my tongue out and licked the headlight. 
Like I ended up almost getting hit by this car. And all I see is like kind of like the rain coming down in the in the beams and then a person's legs hop out and and you know they they ask if they can help me and um, they help me kind of gather all the chocolates. I get home. I'm in tears. I get home because I pour out all the chocolate and my parents look at it and they're like, yeah, that can't be sold. And um, and then um, I wasn't going to make it, but at the very end, my parents rewarded me for kind of my dedication um, by finding some friends who are willing to buy this like unusable chocolate, and uh, and I ended up getting the bike, and um, I put in a lot of work, and I, I tell that story because it taught me very early on that two things that if you want to achieve anything, um, it's possible if you're willing to put in the work. And there's another beautiful byproduct that comes from hard work and dedication. And it's that when things don't go right, like as happened with me, other people recognize the effort you put in and they step in and they lend you a hand when you're down and they help pull you back up. Um, and those lessons always kind of stuck, stuck with me. So, so that's my opening story. <laughs> Man, that it's such a good story. It's one I could relate to too. We had to do it with uh, with M and M's and going door to door to sell them. And I think I started doing that when I was seven years old. Like you know, charging through the neighborhood, same deal, trying to win win prizes and recognition. And you know, not only do you learn hustle, but I think it starts to rewire you because. For the next, you know, all through my childhood, I learned that I could buy and sell stuff, trade, make my own, make my own extra money. And because of that, I didn't pester my parents as much. And then when things actually came to the foray, I was more apt to, to get stuff, you know. So learning that hustle at an early age, I don't know if they if kids do that anymore, but what a great life lesson, you know. Huge, and and it actually set me up for another quick follow-on. So, uh, so I was ten then. When I was thirteen, I started to, you know, I started to pay attention to all these landscaping crews, um, you know, going throughout the neighborhoods, and they're they're you know mostly like immigrant crews, and and they're just working really really hard. And um, and I said to my parents, I said, um, you know, if if uh, if you can buy me you know, a slightly, you know, bigger lawnmower, basically, you know, a more commercial one. I said, I guarantee you, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back within a couple of weeks. So they're willing to take the risk. And I had kind of pre-sold. I went around the neighborhood and knocked on doors and said, hey, 10 bucks, you know, I'll cut your lawn. And so I ended up getting 13 kind of households signed up for that. And when you're 13 years old, making $130 cash a week, even though it's seasonal, that's like good money, you know? <laughs> So, so that was like a, you know, another, another lesson in kind of um, just getting out there and knocking on the doors, you know? So you had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit was ingrained at you in a young age. I mean, I, I've got the same kind of collection of stories of maybe from the age of 10 to the age of 20 of my own little hustles kind of making, making my way. Also avoiding having to like sack groceries at the grocery store or run a paper route that my friends were doing. How did that carry you into, into your adult life and your, your entrepreneurial journey? Well, um, funnily enough, it kind of then went dormant because um, I, I graduated uh, university. I went to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I, I graduated a degree in finance. And then, um, then my first job was with McKinsey and Company as a consultant, which is not very entrepreneurial at all. 
But um, I also had this competitive spirit inside me. And so I was sitting in a management and organizational behavior class, which I only took because the professor was a visiting professor from Stanford. And I thought, okay, I want to be educated by a Stanford professor. And at one point in the, um, in one of his lectures, he said, if anybody in this, um, uh, you know, hall is going to, were to get a job at the company that I'm about to profile next, I'll fall out of my chair. And I took that as a challenge. The company that he talked about was McKinsey. I didn't know what the hell they did or what even management consulting was about, but that was like enough for me. He kind of positioned it as like super hard to get a job there. And so that was my kind of foray into professional life. There was 2000 applicants for 22 roles. Most of them went to Ivy League kids, you know, like, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I was like one of two kids that went to a state school, you know, that, that, that landed a gig there. And uh, I learned a lot in those three years, but equally, I also learned that I needed to do something more entrepreneurial. So um, following that, I, I ran a nonprofit for a while that helped stimulate entrepreneurship and new business development throughout Norway. I was working in McKinsey's Chicago office and then in their Oslo, uh, Norway office. And then, um, and then I joined Skype in its very early days. So we were about 30 or so people, uh, helped with the blitz scaling of that. We went from 30 people to 500. We had an exit to eBay for $2.6 billion dollars. And, um, and then I was sat on my sofa one day thinking, okay, well, what should I do next? And I remembered, uh, I went back to Chicago kind of mentally and, uh, and I was missing Mexican food. I was missing burritos and I, you know, which I had, you know, we grew up on that, right. You know, especially in, in, uh, college. Right. And, um, and so then I uh, built what became an award-winning chain of, uh, Mexican restaurants in the UK. And then these days, I, I, at the moment, I'm helping 31 uh, founders, CEOs um, scale, not just their businesses, but also their leadership and also themselves. So I do this like fusion of peak performance, kind of leadership mentoring and business kind of scaling advice. So it's an interesting cycle, almost like consulting into entrepreneurship almost back into some kind of consulting again in a way. But I, I'm curious about that journey in between a little bit because I think it's really interesting. So you went from McKinsey, which is a pretty traditional consulting organization. Uh, impressive that you got in as the state school kid from Chicago in the first place. I'm sure there's stories behind that. But so you get into this, an early stage of a hyper growth startup. Is that what, first of all, is that really what is, was there something about that experience that made you realize this entrepreneurial journey is is the path? Um, what what made you go in that direction? Did you just see a great opportunity? Did you like the tech? Because um, it's a pretty profound leap to go from uh, one type of culture to potentially the polar opposite type of culture. Yeah, I, so I had been using the product quite early on, given uh, its Scandinavian roots. Um, you know, being half Norwegian and having, you know, use, you, I was using the product to kind of, you know, stay connected with family and all that. So, um, and then when I started to research, you know, a little bit about it, I was like, wow, I, I think this could be huge. Uh, it was at the time, it was vastly superior to anything on the market. So I had this anticipation about the product and the company that, you know, it was just very exciting. Um, and, um, and what really kind of whet my appetite was, I applied for a job and they rejected me. And that was like, that was like, you know, a red rag to a bull. 
<laughs> that was like, what? <laughs> so, so I waited three months and I applied again. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, now you need somebody with business acumen, you know, at least give me the chance to come in and have a chat. And, you know, it's just through that persistence again, you know, selling the chocolates that um, the head of recruitment said, well, you sure are persistent. So yeah, come on in, have a conversation. And, um, and then once I was with the company, it was, Garrett, it was just like magical. It was like, I mean, there's so few rocket ship journeys. Like at that time, there was like, I mean, this was like the biggest unicorn story in Europe, right? And um, you know, we, we, we went from, when you're inside of a, of a company that goes from zero to 53 million users that is adding 150,000 new, new users a day at the time when eBay acquired us. I mean, that's an exhilarating place to be. And, and it was just a whole new approach to work that I had never seen before. Cause McKinsey was like the epitome of structure, right? Everything is so structured. It's like, you know, their hallmark, right? And, um, and then Skype was very structureless. It was just, Hey, okay. Do you want to work on that? That sounds like an interesting project. Okay. What's the business case for it? Okay. Well, yeah, you know, here, why don't you work with so-and-so and kind of put that together and let's see what comes of it. And it was just, it was just, it wasn't just like entrepreneurship. It was like all these microcosms of entrepreneurship within the company itself. And, um, and that was it. You know, once I experienced that, I was like, okay, I was, you know, I was completely corrupted at that point, completely like unhirable, completely like, that was it. It was like done. Yeah. Once you go down that wormhole, it's hard to climb back out of it. That's for sure. I, I'm curious though, because I know a lot of our listeners, especially coming out of this business school are, are oftentimes faced with this choice. Do I take this entrepreneurial path? Do I take the consulting path? Or maybe do I take one first and then move on to the other? I think that only works one directional. It's very hard to go from being an entrepreneur to then being a consultant, but we do see quite a few going to McKinsey or BCG or one of those firms and then starting their own their own gig did you have some particular skills or lessons that you were able to take from your consulting experience that were really beneficial to you when you ended up in uh in hyper growth startup land oh it was hugely beneficial um hugely like i wouldn't change it for a second um so i have um my mind so the natural state of my mind is all over the place like constantly thinking about new things and and at the same time, I can like just disappear into these, you know, like wormholes of thought. Um, and uh, what McKinsey did was kind of gave me the scaffolding to better structure my thinking and also just better solve problems. Um, so that was really helpful for me, especially with, you know, again, my, my kind of natural, you know, inclinations. Um, the other thing, though, is that we live in a world where people are constantly looking for you know, shortcuts. Uh, on our keyboard, we have shortcuts, right? We, um, you know, it, there, there's shortcuts everywhere. We're always looking for, and I don't mean shortcut, by shortcuts, I, do, I don't mean like get rich quick or any of that crap. What I mean is like just doing things more efficiently and quickly. And one of the ways that manifests is through the power of brands. So people like the shortcut that a brand presents. I see the image, I can immediately make tons of decisions that relate to that thing. And so McKinsey has a super strong brand. And 
what that did for me is that when I was talking to people to raise money for my idea, it was like, for me, it was like the ultimate stamp of approval, especially given my background, because I didn't go to Harvard and Princeton and all that. So it was like, for me, it was like the great equalizer, because nobody looked before that, they just looked at that. And um, so it helped me with fundraising and immediately kind of gave people confidence and, you know, a certain level of intellect. And um, uh, so that brand effect was as powerful, maybe even slightly even more powerful than kind of the, the skills that I picked up. I'd probably say it was like 40% skills, 60% brand effect. So that was almost your Ivy League degree that you ended up getting there. Right, right. That makes sense. So you went, you went from consulting into early early stage Skype. So from consulting to hyper growth technology, then you made a, a really interesting shift. And when you and I talked last time, I told you I'd been thinking for 20 years coming back and forth to Germany about the need to build, you know, proper Mexican food offerings in Europe. You actually did this. First of all, I mean, there's so many questions to unpack there because the restaurant business is like no other business. Uh, it is, uh, as complex and challenging um, as maybe and hard work as that is out there. First of all, you know, why? <laughs> why food? You, you didn't have that background. Um, that must have been a leap of faith. Was it opportunistic? And just tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Yeah. So um, so the why simply was rooted in the fact that I was literally missing the food. I was like and, and then that prompted a quick search to time. This is back in 2005. And I found this old thread that had been started maybe four years before where people were complaining about the lack of Mexican food in London. And, um, and so then that prompted, you know, an idea. And I was like, wow, could this, could this be, you know, a thing that I do, right? I can kind of feed myself, give myself the food that I'm looking for, but can't find. And at the same time, there's clearly a huge gap in the market. Now, why was there a big gap in the market for so many years? Because nobody thought that you could convince the average kind of British, you know, uh, guy or gal to, you know, have Mexican food in the same way Americans did, you know, for an office lunch. It was just something that was reserved for these like maybe Christmas dinners that ended up in a night that you couldn't really remember, you know, <laughs> and, um, and um, and I had a different point of view. I thought that ultimately, no matter what form in which the food comes, that the number one thing that people are paying for at the end of the day is flavor. And I knew Mexican food gave me an incredible palate for delivering flavor. And I knew I had a very high standard for that flavor. So as a segue to your next question, you know, you didn't have the skill set to do it. No, but I can also turn on a selection of tunes right now. And without being a DJ, I can tell you which one's gonna be crap commercially and which one's gonna be absolutely awesome. And, um, and so I just became a food DJ. I knew that if I mixed together the right people experiences and ultimately defended myself and also kind of ensured my success by judging it on flavor alone, or i.e. musically, does it sound good to the ear, that I didn't need to know how to play the instruments. I didn't need to know how to compose music. And, um, and that's, that's an incredibly liberating force that suddenly uh, makes industries irrelevant and allows you to pretty much do anything, much in the same way that you know, many of the coaches that we love when it comes to sports have never played the games themselves. They don't need to. They just need to know how to make a collection of people play well together 
so that they win games. And that's what entrepreneurship is. In the beginning, you hustle, you do a pretty crap job as a jack, you know, a jack of all trades. Eventually you hire the specialists on and you just make sure they play well together and, you know, that they're winning games. And um, um, the other liberating thought that I've had, you know, is that all, all the people, resources, and things that you need to do anything in life or business, they all exist already. They all exist. Why? Because matter is neither created nor destroyed. It all exists. So your job, so what is success then? And so success for me, from a first principles point of view, if everything is like, you know, atomic in nature, then, and it's not, not neither created nor destroyed. So your job is to just figure out two things, combination and sequencing. What's the right combination of people, resources, ideas, whatever, and then at any given point in time, what's the right sequencing? And going back to music as an example, we can walk into a room and see a whole myriad of musical instruments. And those instruments can play classical music and electronic dance music. So what's, how so different? Because of changing just two things, combination of in instruments and the sequencing in which they play. And so once you really understand that, that I just have to combine the right things and sequence them in the right order, then you can just literally do anything. So in essence, the, the analogy is maybe that the entrepreneur is not the musician, but is more the conductor of the orchestra, putting, putting the pieces together in the right way or, or, the, or the composer. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you built Chilongo up. This became a pretty large chain of restaurants, right? You became CEO of the year in the, the UK and whatnot. Getting and, then, mm -hmm. and then I went through, so I've been to the top and the bottom. So then uh, restaurant industry starts taking a turn in the UK. This is before the pandemic. And I had, we had, you know, overexpanded with too many leases and we we're trying to get rid of the leases. And then we have huge chains, much bigger than us start going out of, out of business in the UK or, or, or uh, shutting huge amounts of units. And then the bank pulls our overdraft because they cite sector concerns. And then our, we lose asset financing. And then um, there's a whole myriad of things. Uh, uh, we had, had done a, a bunch of investments in head office that just weren't you know, paying their returns uh, you know, across the site. And all these things line up against us just after having done a very successful public fundraise. And six months after having done that raise, I have to restructure the entire company. So I have to get rid of you know, leases. I have to change debt into equity survive an absolute shitstorm in the media, do all of that, preserve all of the principal investment and rates of return for our investors and totally, you know, change the debt profile of the company. We were, you know, massively then profitable at a group EBITDA level. And then three months after having done all of that, I'm, I'm, I'm now on the board, you know, of, of, of this company rather than, you know, actively managing it. But three months after having done all of that, COVID comes in and forces the entire chain into administration. Over 800 restaurant and bar chains in the UK went into administration as a result of the zero revenue environment for over a year with COVID. So that was, that was incredibly tough. You know, when you spend over a decade trying to build something, you know, making, making your mistakes, learning from them. Um, and, and then 
right in that final moment, it all gets kind of you know pulled away by a virus. That's uh, that brings you down to nothing. It was a it was the first time I was like in tears professionally. You know, I was like, this is this is pretty awful. I felt bad, you know, not just for myself, but for all the people, right, that had um, uh, supported the company. But like a phoenix out of the ashes, you know, I thought, okay, well, how do I apply everything that I've learned, the ups and the downs, you know, for both my benefit and the benefit of the other, uh, of others? And then that morphed into this, uh, which I do under a personal brand at Eric uh, ericpartaker.com, but that morphed into this whole advisory business where, you know, once again, I'm, I'm helping people scale on three fronts in parallel. Because uh, for me, like the company is the hardware. So for the our hardware to operate correctly, we need to make sure the software is coded correctly. And so that's, you know, the leadership and themselves. So, so yeah, I help them scale their companies, their leadership and themselves all in, in parallel. So this is a really interesting transition for me because I went through a similar one, you know, watching a, something I built from the ground up eventually trickle away into its into its last breath and the emotional roller coaster that comes along with that. And, you know, definitely had some well-being struggles as a result of that. You know, maybe not tears, but it manifested in all sorts of other unhealthy ways for me and, you know, really got interested in that topic. And. But what I see is you kind of did the same thing that I did is you kind of look beyond well-being and you started looking into peak performance. I reckon peak performance is speaking much more the entrepreneur's language. You know, we all reckon ourselves to be high performers, resilient, gritty, all those kind of characteristics. The first question I have for you is, you know, what do you see as the this kind of core tenant of what's important to I mean, do you deal with well-being? Do you deal with with performance? And what is that foundational work that you do with entrepreneurs to help them, you know, or, or maybe tune their software to be ready for this very dynamic highs and lows and emotional journey that they go on? Yeah, so, so for me, peak performance is all about tilting the odds in your favor. The, the deck is stacked against us. So Abraham Maslow, when he did his research about his hierarchy of needs, he, of course, said that, you know, at the top of his pyramid was uh, self-actualization, that our path to deepest fulfillment, you know, rests in operating our, at our fullest potential. But he also estimated that only 2% of people operate at their full potential. So ultimately, when I say peak performance, what I am using that for is a means to an end. Peak performance for me is my attempt to solve what I see as the world's biggest problem, that the vast majority of people aren't playing the game that they're capable of playing, that the vast majority of people are all stuck together in this 98% mass, and only a few manage, two out of 100, to break away and reach their full potential. So everything that I do in terms of the advisory, the coaching, the mentoring, you know, the book that I've written, The Three Alarms, uh, the, the program that I put together, the Peak Performance Master's Program, um, all of the, the one-to-one you know, coaching and mentoring, all of this is about helping people break free from the 98% and join the 2%. And the peak performance strategies that I use for that, I mean, just to give you, you know, a handful, um, uh, uh, some, some of it rests in the acronym IPA. So like the beer, but better for you. 
Um, so the I stands for identity. Uh, you know, our behavior is driven by our identity. And we actually know this. We used to do this as kids. When I bought my seven-year-old a Captain America shield uh, six weeks ago, I didn't have to give him behavioral training in how to act like Captain America. He immediately became him. And so if we can tap into the right identity, we can achieve, you know, and start behaving in the way that we know we should be. Um, the reason I focus on productivity is because knowledge isn't power anymore. Knowledge is cheap. It's about translating knowledge into action. So um, a lot of times people, uh, you know, question their ability to be productive, but they don't realize that actually they've been perfect productivity wise for their entire lives. Let me give you a quick example. <clears throat> um, well, let me, let me role play this with you real quick here. So, so when was the last time you had a super important meeting? Like, man, this meeting is important. You, you need this meeting, but you just chose not to schedule it. It's, it's important, but you're like, no, I'm not going to schedule it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'm an outlier and we'll break this role play game, but um probably pr relatively recently, I would say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, ge generally speaking, generally speaking, if it's really, really important to me, I'll be on my A game and ready for it. You'll schedule it. And if it's really important, when was the last time you just chose just to not, I mean, we showed up today for each other. When's the last time you just didn't show up and completely blank someone? Yeah, I never do that. I, I think I have an ethos against that. Yeah. Yeah. Or when you're in a meeting with someone that you just literally get up after the 13th minute and just walk out of the coffee shop and leave. Yeah. yeah. Right. So these things don't happen. We, 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 and these are the hallmarks of productivity. Three S's schedule, show up and single task. And we do this effortlessly with other people. We've been doing it our entire lives, uh, but we don't do this with ourselves. And it's an issue of respect. So we respect others, but we don't show ourselves the same self-respect. So one of the things I try to do is, is get people to realize that they don't have a productivity issue. They have a self-respect issue. <clears throat> and if they can tap into the fact that they've been super productive with others for decades or for five years, whatever it is, then it's a little bit easier to start realizing that the same thing you've been doing for others, you can also just start doing with yourself. And then the last thing is anti-fragility, the A. Um, so, um, you know, I've never heard somebody walk into a gym and say, can you please point me into the direction of the most comfortable weights? I've never heard somebody walk into a gym and say, I'd like to sign up for the circuit training that will stress my body the least. Like this doesn't happen because physically we know that stress builds strength. And so again, we've already been doing this for most of our lives physically. And so one of the things that I try to train into people's minds is to get what they've been doing physically up in their heads mentally and seek stress in the course of your day. Um, like look, step into the challenges, step into the discomfort because that's exactly where the growth is in the same way that when you stress a muscle, it causes it to grow. Um, so through identity, productivity, and anti-fragility, and you know, a bunch of like super practical practices within each, um, that's one of the ways in which I help people you know, go from being an average performer and a peak performer so they can break free from the 98% and join that 2%. Awesome. Um, I mean, so many of those pieces of your, the, the IPA acronym really resonate. But I wanna ask you from 
maybe a different perspective because, you know, I worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs a year who I would say are, are pretty self-aware and pretty intrinsically motivated, um, have high degrees of productivity and certainly charge headfirst into stress. Um, but maybe they have all of those things in such a great abundance that they're out of whack as a result, right? There can be too much of a good thing, perhaps. Like, do you find uh, those examples as well? And how do you address people that are, you know, what I see is people charging into the abyss full speed ahead. And I oftentimes spend time on getting people to focus on recovery and rest and reflection and introspection and, you know, the things where you're not always doing, but you're taking time to think as well, which may, some people may perceive as anti-productivity. I actually see that as, again, upgrading the software to be able to be more productive later. Yeah, no, I, t I completely agree with that. And, um, in my book, The Three Alarms, I present this model of IPA, but I talk about how life is a three-legged stool and that we can't just be workaholics, just apply the IPA on the work front, that it needs to be applied multidimensionally on the health, wealth, and relationship fronts. And two of those three things, health and relationships, they have nothing to do with work. But if we master those, we do better at work. And, and a, you know, a key cornerstone on the health front is rest and recovery, like you're saying. You don't achieve peak performance by just constantly stressing yourself. You know, it's the stress plus, you know, the rest that, you know, creates the growth. And um, um, so it's absolutely part and parcel of the, the whole thing. And, um, um, and I think that's like a sense of relief for people. You know, so for that mindset that wants to be a peak performer, when you actually tell them to achieve what you want, you need to rest more and you need to, you know, actually take some time to invest in your health and relationships. That's a bit of like a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, okay. So I can actually do less to literally do more. Um, yeah. Not, not that you just can do that, but it's actually the only way you will get to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You, you know, I, your book was what I really liked about your book is you kind of touched on all facets of life and it wasn't just in the context of your career or or your business or whatever it might be. And that was a challenge I faced many years ago, which was, you know, I, I don't think I had an IPA problem. I had I had it but only in one domain. So I put it all that energy into my business and my career and I sacrificed the the family and the friends and and the rest and and the things like that as well. You know, you've been a pretty high performer for a long time. I know you also have a, a wife and children. Um have you been able to balance that in all aspects of your life and how do you deal with trade-offs when you only have so much time in the day? Yeah, so my Still to this day, on my worst day, it's workaholism, right? So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I got it all under control. It's all fine. Look at me. Oh. <laughs> it's like far from the truth, but it's just that um, um, by working, you know, we, 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 we teach what we most need, right? And so like by working on these things, um, I've become more balanced than I was in the past. I, I think, you know, on that note, I think all entrepreneurs will be naturally geared towards workaholism. Like that's, that's like the default. And um, so 
um, yeah, I mean, I've just, I've just had to very diligently prioritize, you know, health and relationships. At the start of each day, I, I kind of visualize a best self identity on each of those fronts, health front, wealth front, relationship front. And I ask myself, if I were to do just one thing in the context of today, such that by doing it, it would evidence that I was being this champion version of me holistically in each of these three areas, what is that one thing? And I try to do, you know, those three things in the course of each day. And so, you know, on the health front, it might be like, you know, knockouts, 500 calories in the stationary bike. Um, on the work front, it might be, you know, don't procrastinate, kind of take 20 minutes, write that email, press send. Um, and on the home front, it might be, um, you know, calling, uh, you know, a loved one or something, you know, calling my mom, for example, or telling my wife that I love her. Like it could be very, very simple things. But the key, I think, to feeling more balanced is to recognize that it's not actually balance that you want, it's satisfaction. You want to feel satisfied multidimensionally and then approach it with intentionality. So like, what's the thing that I want to do such that by doing it, I'll feel satisfied and just keep doing that day in, day out. My, my wife is a tremendous support to me tremendous support she's the um we're at whereas i'm like oh my gosh you know there's so much more we could do you know my wife's like how about you go to bed now and you get up early and you feel fresh <laughs> and you know i remember when she first used to say stuff like to me and i thought that's crazy why don't I just stay up late and get up early? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, everyone needs a voice of reason. That is for sure. But every time she says that now, it's like every time now when she says that, I'm like, yep. Yes, dear. Yep. I'll give you one final thing real quick that I do, um, especially to force yourself to kind of go to bed at a good time and also get the health programmed in. You know, people spend so much every year on holidays and get a personal trainer for the first, you know, every Monday through Friday, I'm at the gym for the first session that's available with the PT from 6.15 to 7 a.m., 45 minutes. It forces me to get to bed by nine every day, forces me to start my day energetically, and it kind of keeps that health domain in order, right? Yep, 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 yeah. I, I schedule that in my day, and I make sure that some, some things I am not willing, are non-negotiable to, to trade off, and those things that prime the pump that way, are so incredibly valuable. Man, Eric, I, there's so many things I could dig into on this topic. Uh, I mean, the just being satisfied in your day, I think is such a, a great message. It's one that I kind of practice with a, a list each day of if I accomplish these three things, the day is a win and it's it's good enough, you know? And sometimes we have to know when to when to hold them, when to fold them. But with all that being said, and, and the much deeper we could go, I wanna wrap things up with kind of three rapid fire questions that I ask everybody. The first one is, <clears throat> You've obviously evolved intellectually, professionally, emotionally over the past 20 years of your career. If there's one thing that you've learned on this journey you wish you could tell your younger self, what would it be? Gosh, take take action. Just just act. Like don't say, stop thinking so much. Mm. You know, take action. That's absolutely the number one thing. Turn off the brain. <laughs> yeah, good. That's the maybe the hardest task for people like you and I to do, you know? Organize the chaos a little bit. Cool. And just a couple fun ones. Um, 
and feel free to recommend your own if you want. But uh, is there a book on your bedside table that you could recommend? Yeah, uh, totally. Um, uh, well, there's the three alarms. So obviously <laughs> the one I wrote, um, but I just picked up this. So I'm looking forward to reading this multipliers, how the best leaders make everyone smarter. Awesome. Awesome. And last but not least, uh, what's, uh, what's cycling on your playlist when you're going through those hard workouts? Well, so, um, the, the song that's like in my head lately, uh, it's really funny. It's, uh, Tiesto, um, let's get down to business. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's in my head a lot lately. Cool. Eric Partaker, thank you so much for, for joining us, man. I wish, wish we had more time for this. Um, maybe we can do it again sometime, but, uh, as, uh, a kindred spirit, you're speaking my language and I'm, I'm glad you could join us and share your story. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Gary. Thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, if anybody is, uh, you know, keen to get in touch, you want to have a chat, just reach out to me at, uh, ericpartaker.com. Awesome. I'll make sure to add that into the show notes. Thank you so much, mate. Great to have you. Thanks. See you then. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that was Eric Partaker, entrepreneur and globally recognized peak performance coach. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday. And until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our channel on YouTube, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your po favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.